All right, in everybody's favorite 1866 novel, Crime and Punishment. Do you guys know this? Has anybody actually read Crime and Punishment? Okay, I listened to the audiobook like a bunch of years ago. It was a whole thing. Um, I was on this, hey, I'm going to listen to all these classic book kicks, and I think I got through Crime and Punishment, and I was like, you know what? It's back to Dr. Seuss. But anyway, <laughs> um, it's a Russian novel by Dostoevsky. Is that how you say that? Yeah, I think so. And the story, it takes place in St. Petersburg, and it's really dense, and it's written in Russian and then translated into English. And from the parts I remember, um, there was the main character. I'm going to try to say this guy's name, Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov? Kiv? Um, anyway, he was this guy who, and this is what he believed, that in the world there were a few extraordinary human beings, and they're just better than everybody else. And they should be allowed to go around and commit crimes for the greater good. And so he calls this in the book the superior man theory. And so he finds this evil woman, uh, Alana, I don't, Ivana, uh, you know, I don't know how to say this. I'm not even going to try. The whole story, and so what he does is he kills her. He finds this lady, she's evil, and so he kills her. And the whole story is like his story of uh, is like journey through guilt and the shame that eventually leads him to confess. I'm spoiling it, but you guys, it came out in 1866. Uh, but he confesses and he's sent to this prison in Siberia where he kind of has this breakthrough. And, you know, uh, anyway, so one of, at the beginning, though, one of his heroes with this superior man theory uh, was Napoleon, this violent dictator. And what uh, Raskolnikov looked at him and said, yeah, me and him, me and Napoleon, were the same. We are superior human beings. We are better than everybody else. And so he used that to sort of justify his murder. He, he, he connected with Napo something about Napoleon. Um, I tell you that to show you something. That's not how most of us behave. Most of us go the opposite way. When we want to justify sinful behavior, we don't compare ourselves to sinful people and say, yeah, you know what? Uh, we, me and this other sinful person, we're better than everybody else, so we should be able to just sin and get away with whatever. You know, we should be able to do this kind of stuff. Um, most of us go the other way. To justify our sinful behavior, we rely on evil people to minimize our own sin. Okay, I may be lustful, but I'm no Prince Andrew, you know what I mean? Or Jeffrey, he'll sue me. Allegedly. <laughs> Right, that's what you have to say or you'll get sued. Or Jeffrey Epstein, he can't really sue me. Um, I may be dishonest, but I'm no Nixon. He can't sue me either. Um, I may have violent thoughts, but I'm no Hitler, right? I may drink too much, but I'm no Leonard Nimoy. Okay, I Googled famous alcoholics, and he was on the top of every list that I Googled, and I didn't even know he was a famous alcoholics, you know. Anyway, so I may be whatever, you know, I may do this, but I'm no whoever it is. And uh, last week... This is what we do. We look at these people and we, it makes us feel better. Okay, I'm a sinner, but I'm not this bad. Last week we talked about how sin skews the way that we see the world, right? Sin is like, I said, it's like the fog uh, in my motorcycle helmet where it, it blocks kind of how you see the world. Today what we're going to do is kind of continue slash build on that theme a little bit. Not only does our sin skew our view of history, that's what we talked about last week, um, but here it skews how we view others and how we use that to make ourselves feel better. Our sin nature, the busted up part of you that's fallen and broken, the, the sin that you're always fighting, what it does is it lifts yourself up and it knocks other people down. And it grasps onto anything that will accomplish the goal of lifting you up. And this is why we secretly love those Karen videos on Reddit. You guys know what I'm talking about? These videos of people screaming in an elevator or screaming. It's always usually at the airport. 
boy, people really have trouble flying lately. But, you know, it's like that, the guy, the one guy who, sir, this is my favorite video of all time. Sir, you're yelling. Remember he's upset about the baby that's screaming on the plane? And he's just, this guy's throwing a fit. And the flight attendant guy's like, sir, you're yelling. And the guy says, so is the baby. And I just think that's the funniest thing I've ever seen. But this is why we love these videos, because we watch it and it makes me feel good. You know who I've never yelled at on a plane? A baby, right? And so I may yell at somebody else, but hey, at least I'm not yelling at a baby. I may get annoyed at the parents who have the baby, but you know, I've never been escorted off the plane um, this seems to be, tying this into Ezekiel now, this seems to be what the people of God were doing in the time of Ezekiel. So the quick historical recap goes like this. Israel uh, in the north, the kingdom in the north, was taken captive uh, and sent into exile by the kingdom of Assyria. And uh, Isaiah, after that happened... Isaiah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, all these different prophets came along and told the kingdom of Judah in the south, hey guys, the same thing is going to happen to you, but from the Babylonians. And what happened was the first wave of exiles were taken. And then the second wave of exiles were taken. That was Ezekiel and Daniel and uh, the king and all these people, right? And so the people in Jerusalem, though, refused to believe that God was going to follow through on his entire promise, that not only are people going to be taken, but the city is going to be destroyed. And so what they do is they, the, the leaders in Jerusalem, they're jockeying sort of politically. Well, maybe Egypt will help us. Maybe these other people will help us. Um, they can't look their own sin in the face. And so what they do is they look at Israel in the north. And because God's judgment hasn't happened yet, what these leaders were saying was something like this. Okay, well, we might be bad, and we might have had those first two waves of exiles, but at least we weren't completely wiped out like Israel in the north. You know, this is very sibling rivalry, you know. Well, I may be bad, but at least I'm not my brother kind of a thing, you know. And um, this whole chapter, then, is God's sort of attack on that idea that you can't just look at Israel in the north and say, well, at least I'm not that bad, because actually you're worse, and what's going to happen to you is going to be worse than what happened to them. So we're going to read all of chapter... Oh, wait, there's crime and punishment if you want to look at it. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Here we go. Chapter 23. Uh, we're going to read the whole chapter today. Only one chapter, though, after last week was 16 or 25 chapters. I don't remember. It was a lot. I'm still reading it, actually, from last week. No. Uh, here we go. The word of the Lord came to me again. Son of man, there were two women... Daughters of the same mother, who, they got those Yodos on, right? Okay, here we go. They're not listening. Okay. Son of, <laughs> there were two women, daughters of the same mother, who acted like prostitutes in Egypt, behaving promiscuously in their youth. Get those headphones on. Their breasts were fondled there and their virgin nipples caressed. Hey, that's in the Bible. I had to read it. The older one was named Ahola and her sister was Aholaba. Great baby names, if anybody's looking. They became mine. Actually, they're terrible baby names. Uh, they became mine and gave birth to sons and daughters. As for their names, Ahola represents Samaria, and Aholaba represents Jerusalem. So he tells this story about these two sisters, right? Ahola and Aholaba, um, sisters of the same mother. So what's going on here is these are all the people of God. And the meaning of the names, it's really interesting as I was reading about this. The truth is we have no idea what these names mean. Right, So there was probably some sort of really specific meaning back in the day that has been lost to history or something. There were some guesses and some stuff, but we don't really know what these names mean. But we know who the names represent. So Jerusalem is Aholaba. Ahola is Samaria. Now, real quick again, let me tell you the story of how this went down. So originally there's King David. You guys know about him? 
with the, what, with the Goliath and everything. And then he becomes the king. He has a son. His name's Solomon. He's the one that's chopping babies in half and everything. Well, almost chopping babies in half. And, uh, you know, with the wisdom and everything. Well, then Solomon dies. And um, he had a son who was this spoiled trust fund baby. And the trust fund baby spoiled brat who never did a work, a day of work in his life was a kid named Rehoboam. And he became the king. And uh, the people came to Rehoboam and they said, hey, your dad was really harsh with us, with taxes and all this other stuff. Can you lighten up on us? And he says, sure. Let me go ask my frat bros what they think. So he goes down to the marina. They hang out in a bar. He talks about, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, he talks about this and he goes, um, uh, he comes back to the leaders and he says, actually, you know what? I'm going to be harsher than my dad. And so the people were not having it. They didn't like it. And so half, more than half of the kingdom, 10 of the tribes said, you know what? Fine, we're out of here. And they split and they formed the northern, um, the northern kingdom of Israel. And so now the people of God are two. That's why we have two sisters in this thing. So you have Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And what Israel did was they set up their own temple because the kings didn't want people to have to travel down into the other kingdom for worship and stuff. So they set up these false gods, these golden calves. Um, and the, the history of Israel in the north was, if there's like these charts, and I had to memorize one of these charts in Bible college of all the kings. And was he good or bad or kind of in between, right? And if you look at the chart, all the kings of Israel, it's like red, red, red. You know, they're all bad, bad, bad. You know, then one of them, it's like, this guy's the worst. You know, we read about some of these kings. Anyway, um, in Judah, it's like good king, bad king, bad king. You know, good king, bad king. Bad. They had a few good kings kind of on and off. Mostly bad kings, though, leading up to the exile. And so what, these are the two sisters in our story. And what God says about these two sisters is that they were acting like prostitutes. The image is that God is married to his people. And if you remember, we got into this super graphically in chapter 16, where he really gets into it. And he says, like recapping that chapter real quick is God finds, you know, it's like the picture of this girl and um, the husband, right? God, he finds the girl by the road and he raises her up, lavishes her with presents. He marries her, makes her into royalty. Um, and then she prostituted herself, except well, only kind of, because what it said was, well, prostitutes get paid by the guys, but you paid the guys. So it's kind of backwards prostitution. And this whole chapter, chapter 16, was really graphic. And the focus was spiritual adultery. You guys have, as a people who are supposed to worship God, you've cheated on God. Here, it's not exactly the same focus. Here, the emphasis is more on the political situation. So not only was God supposed to be their God spiritually, and they were supposed to worship him, the people of God were supposed to be a theocracy. You guys know what that is? It's where God is the king. God's the one in charge. Um, when he brought them out of Egypt, he told them not only how to worship, but how to govern themselves. And their government and their religion was all tied up in a way that ours isn't meant to be. And um, uh, yeah, anyway, so this, the focus of this chapter then is not the spiritual adultery, although that's there a little bit. It's politically. They were supposed to trust God to protect them. They were supposed to trust God to keep their nation secure, and they didn't. They kept going to the Egyptians. They kept going to everywhere else to try to find that protection. They weren't trusting God for their, their physical, actual protection. So let's look at the outline of this chapter. And that was like the intro of the, that, those first couple verses there were like setting it up. We know about the two sisters now. So this is what happens. First, he talks about Samaria. Then he talks about Jerusalem. Then he brings kind of more charges. And then we'll talk about how the passage connects with us. So first, let's start with Samaria in 5 to 10. Ahola acted like a prostitute. 
even though she was mine. She lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians, warriors, dressed in blue, governors and prefects, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding steels. She offered her sexual favors to them. All of them were the elite of Assyria. So here's the political situation. The way this worked in the ancient world is, I like to describe it like this. These kingdoms, it was like a mob shakedown. You guys know what this is? Okay, so you own a bagel place in Brooklyn or whatever. And these two guys, I don't even know if this really happens. I just watch TV, right? And these two guys come in, and they say, hey, it would be a shame if somebody burned your store down. And the bagel guy goes, well, who would do that? And he's like, well, you know what? We'll make sure nobody burns your store down, if you know what I mean. If you give us, I don't know what it is, 10% of everything you make or something. I don't know how that works. Give us a couple hundred dollars a week, and we'll make sure nobody burns your store down. He says, okay. And every week, these two guys show up in their fancy suits, like Josue's fancy suits. And uh, I'm not saying you're in the mob, but I'm, I don't never asked, actually. Um, and they show up, and you have to give them the cash. And the one time you don't give them the cash, you show up the next morning, and guess what? Somebody burns your store down, right? Okay, this is kind of how those mob shakedown shake work, uh, works. This is how the ancient world worked. These kingdoms, like these big, giant, powerful kingdoms would come along. Babylon, Egypt, Syria, Assyria. And they would find a little kingdom like Judah or Israel. And they would say, all right, you work for me now. It'd be a shame if somebody burned your whole country down. And they would say, unless you wanted to give us a tribute. And if you give us a tribute, I don't think anybody's going to, we'll protect you. Nobody's going to burn your house down. And so every year, all the people would have to get together all the gold and silver and everything that they could find. And usually it was pretty burdensome. It was pretty hard to make this tribute happen. And so with the political situation with Israel in the north, Samaria is the capital of Israel in the north. And so um, what happened with Samaria was Assyria was like that mobster, and Israel was the vassal state. And every year, somebody from Assyria would come down and say, you got my trunk of gold, do you have my whatever? And they would have to pay it. Um, and... The problem is Israel was meant to trust God. The people of God were in this unique situation. God promised to them, as a nation, I will take care of you. I will always take care of you. If you worship me, you don't have to worry about these shakedowns. You don't have to worry about these guys. All you have to do is stay faithful to me and then let me handle the rest. And at one point, like God killed, what was it, 170,000 soldiers of an army for his people, right? He meant what he said. He was going to protect his people. The people just never really believed him. Um, but look at what this says here. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some, this is talking about this. So some take pride in chariots, others in horses, but we take pride in the name of the Lord our God. That's how they were supposed to be. Not take pride in how much military might that they had. Right? This is a Gideon situation. All you need is Gideon, a couple of guys, and you can defeat whoever, right? Because you have God on your side. Um, or Isaiah 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and who depend on horses. They trust in the abundance of chariots and in the large numbers of horsemen. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel, and they do not seek the Lord. Right? So this is what God says. Again, is you don't have to worry about chariots. You don't have to worry about all this stuff. Just trust in me. All right, so back in Ezekiel, um, the end of verse 7 here. She defiled herself with all those that she lusted after with their idols. She didn't give up her promiscuity promiscuity that began in Egypt when men slept with her in her youth. They got those headphones on. Caressed her virgin nipples and poured out uh, their lust on her. On the podcast, they're going to be wondering, who's supposed to have headphones on? Uh, <laughs> um, so what he says is this whole attitude of not trusting me, this started way back in Egypt. I'm going to take you out of the land and I'm going to bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. 
And they're traveling across the desert, and they're like, God's just going to kill us. And Moses is like, hey, actually, he's not going to kill you. Right? Here's some manna, and here's living water. You know, I mean, here's this water from a rock. Here's all this really cool stuff. And they were like, oh, well, we wanted meat. Though. You know, we wanted, I miss steak and eggs and whatever. And so, uh, yeah, it just constantly, over and over again, they weren't trusting God. Therefore, verse 9 um, therefore, I handed you over to her lovers, the Assyrians she lusted for. They exposed her nakedness, seized her sons and daughters, killed her with the sword. Since they executed judgment against her, she became notorious among women. So how this went down was that eventually somebody, uh, some of the kings and stuff got together and they said, you know what? We're not paying the tribute anymore. We're not paying Assyria. I don't care. They're not going to defeat us in battle. We're, they got all, you know, proud of themselves and thought that they could fight the mighty Assyrian army. And so the Assyrians came in, and they completely destroyed the land of Israel in the north, and they burned Samaria to the ground, and the couple of people that survived, they took them, and they spread them in exile, except like, unlike the exile from the south, those people never came back. That's where you hear the phrase, the ten lost tribes of Israel. Now, I couldn't find any specific verses about this, maybe I missed them, but you can imagine that when Israel was taken captive, Judah was at least relieved, Probably some of the people were happy. These two nations had a very rocky relationship. Um, it's like when you're on Facebook and you find out your ex's new relationship is not going very well, and you're like, yeah, there we go. I don't know. That's never happened to me, but I'm sure you, I just made that up. But you, it's something like that, right, where you're, this is kind of that gloating. Um, and so God, he's not having this. He's not having this attitude. So now he's going to move. He talked about Samaria. Now he's going to talk about Jerusalem in verse 11. So Jerusalem goes from verse 11 to 21. Now her sister, Aholabah, that's Jerusalem, said this, but she was even more depraved in her lust than Ahola, Samaria, and made her promiscuous acts worse than those of her sister. Hey, we're getting close to some real headphones here, if she's going to, just a heads up. I know, yeah, all right. Um, <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. The, the, the nation in the south saw what happened to Samaria and the nation in the north, and should have known better. Now imagine two kids. You have two kids, right? I have two kids. Imagine one of them touches the stove, burns her hand really bad. That's no good. Okay, all the while the other kid is standing right there watching it happen. Sees the crying and the screaming and the pain, the whole scene. And then the other kid goes, yeah, that looks like a good idea. <laughs> right, and touches the stove. What would mom's reaction be? Are you kidding me? Didn't you just watch your sister touch the stove? You know, that's kind of what happened here. Is Israel should have, I'm sorry, Judah in the south should have known better. They watched everything that happened. So um, Israel in the north was taken captive in 722 BC. Judah was finally taken captive in 586, but the process took a while. So it's about 100 years went by that they had to think about what their sister had done. And they didn't learn their lesson at all. And in fact, God says, you were even worse. You touched the stove with both hands, you dummy. Right? That's kind of what's going on here. This, um, uh, her idolatry was worse. Do you guys remember the temple vision from, what was that, chapters, I forget off the top of my head, 9 through 11, I think, um, where Ezekiel is taken through the temple. And what's going on is they're worshiping all these gods from other countries and other religions in the temple of God which is not, that's worse than even what, and they're sacrificing children in the temple doing all this stuff. And God says, that's worse than even what your sister was doing. Verse 12, she lusted after the Assyrians, the governors, and the prefects, warriors splendidly dressed, horsemen riding on steeds, all of them desirable young men. 
So she's lusting after the Assyrians to help her fight the Babylonians. Um, and here's the thing. God's command was this. Take the gospel to the nations. You should be a light to the nations. You should influence the nations. And the, the problem is the whole Old Testament is the story of that going the other way. The nations are influencing the people. And so it, they're, they're flipping God's actual command. Verse 13. And I saw that she had defiled herself. Both of them had taken the same path. But she increased her promiscuity when she saw male figures carved on the wall, images of the Chaldeans, engraved in bright red, fifth, uh, sorry, wearing belts on their waists and flowing turbans on their heads. All of them look like officers, a depiction of the Babylonians in Chaldea, their native land. At the sight of them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to, Chal uh, to Chaldea. So first they see these men carved on the wall. The Babylonians or the Chaldeans, it's kind of the same thing, right? Um, that was the tribe that became the Babylonians. Um, had a lot of decorative stuff celebrating military victories. You guys know people used to do this in the ancient world. You can actually see a lot of this stuff in the British Museum because they stole it all. They took it to London. Um, you can walk by some of the walls from Assyria and from Babylon, I think. And um, what they do is like, oh, yeah, we have a whole carving on the wall of us killing a couple of hundred thousand people. Right? Or if you go to Rome, can't you still see Titus's arch in Rome? Does anybody know? Anybody ever been to Rome? All you guys that travel and go places? There's the arch from, I think it's Vespasian. Anyway, I thought it was Titus, maybe Vespasian. Anyway, the guy that destroyed Jerusalem. You can still see. They do this, right? They make these, these carvings of their military victories. And remember, this chapter is about political adultery. And God had said to the people, I'll take care of you. And then they saw these carvings on the wall, and they're like, no, those are the strong guys. I want them to take care of me. Look, they have shields. They have all this stuff. We're going to trust in their, you know, um, we're going to turn to them. And so what they did, it says at the end here, they sent messengers. When they should have just prayed to God, hey, God, can you take care of us? Instead, they paid people to travel all the way to Babylon to go ask them, hey, can you protect us? Right? It's like a middle schooler sending a note across the room. Do you like me? Do you remember that? Melissa remembers that because she kept sending me these notes. She won't leave me alone. It's like enough already, you know? So I, I gave in, I married her. All right, verse 17. <laughs> She's laughing because she knows it's true. <laughs> then the Babylonians, all right, keep going, back to the serious stuff. Then the Babylonians came to her, to the bed of love, and defiled her with lust. But after she was defiled by them, she turned away from them in disgust. When she flaunted her promiscuity, exposed her nakedness, I turned away from her in disgust, just as I turned away from her sister. So again, it was at um, first, here's what happened. At first, it was great being a vassal state. They had safety and protection and everything, but for a price. And eventually, the people of God uh, in Judah, the people in Jerusalem, these kings, they rebelled against the Babylonians. They said, okay, we're done paying this tribute. And this is where Babylon got mad. No, you can't just be done paying the tribute or we're going to come and burn your bagel shop down. And so then after they did that, the people then turned to God and said, oh, no, the Babylonians are coming now. Can you protect us? And God said, why didn't you ask me before? Right? You're only asking me as this last. You don't really mean it. You're just asking me. God wasn't having it as this last ditch effort or whatever. And it's too late for that. Verse 19. Yet she multiplied her acts of promiscuity, remembering the days of her youth when she acted like a prostitute in the land of Egypt. She lusted after her lovers, whose sexual members were like those of donkeys and whose omission was like that of stallions. That's in the Bible. So you revisited the depravity of your youth when the Egyptians caressed your nipples to enjoy your youthful breasts. Okay, that's a weird Bible verse. Um, can I tell you a funny story? Okay, here's the thing. 
back when I was like a young punk youth pastor, you know, and probably didn't know any better. I used to write in people's birthday cards and something, you know, God's so proud of you, yada, yada, yada. And at the bottom, I would write Ezekiel 23, 20 through 21. <laughs> Just to see if anybody would ever actually look up the verse that their pastor put in their birthday card. And one of two things, now that I'm thinking about this 15 years later, either they looked it up and they were like, what? And then they never talked to me about it or they never looked it up. Because not a single person ever came, I probably did this more than a dozen times, not a single person ever came back to me with this Ezekiel 23, anyway, this is purposefully vulgar, right? This is supposed to be shocking, especially in the ancient world where people didn't watch TV that's vulgar the way we do. It's only kind of vulgar for us, and still it's weird to hear your pastor read that, isn't it? For them in the ancient world, they didn't have anything like this. This was supposed to be purposefully shocking. You guys are a bunch of prostitutes. You know, in the ESV, it says you're a bunch of whores, and you've turned on the Lord, and you've cheated on him with these, you know, anyway, all the stuff that we just read. So those are the charges from God. Now, God's response in um, uh, verse 22 through 35. Therefore, this is kind of a long section here, Aholaba, this is what the Lord God says. I'm going to incite your lovers against you, those you turned away from in disgust, I will bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekod, Shoah, and Koah, all the Assyrians with them, desirable young men, all of them governors and prefects, officers and administrators, all of them riding steeds. They will come against you with an assembly of people with uh, peoples with weapons, chariots, and wagons. They will set themselves against you on every side with large and small shields and helmets. I will delegate judgment to them, and they will judge you by their own standards. When I vent my jealousy, my jealous fury on you, they will deal with you in wrath. They will cut off your nose and your ears. The rest of you will fall by the sword. They will seize your sons and daughters, and the rest of you will be consumed by fire. They will strip off your clothes and take your beautiful jewelry. So I will put an end to your depravity and your sexual immorality, which began in the land of Egypt. And uh, you will not look longingly at them or remember Egypt anymore. So in verse 22, he talks about, I will do this. He says this over and over again. I will, I will, I will. This is the sovereignty of God. We did a sermon about this a few weeks ago. And then in verses 22 through 26, we see what they're going to do. They're going to invade. They're going to destroy people. They're going to cut off ears. It's going to be horrible. And the point, God says, is in verse 27. So I will put an end to your depravity. I will put an end to you cheating on me. Right? You won't long for foreign protection anymore. After this happens, you're not going to go, oh man, I wish we were still being protected by Egypt. And then verse 28, for this is what the Lord God says, I am going to hand you over to those that you hate, to those you turned away from in disgust. Wait, that's kind of weird, right? You hate them? I thought you loved the foreign powers. The truth is, no, they didn't love the foreign powers. They just wanted to use them. There's no real love there. Um, and there's a parallel here that could be a whole... Uh, Anyway, I won't get into this. It could be a whole sermon about how we, in a lot of our relationships, this is what we do. We just use people. You know what I mean? I don't, you don't love that person. You don't love that group, whoever it is. Like, this is what we do with human nature. When truthfully, we just hate them. We hate people. We just love what we can get from people instead of actually uh, loving people. All right, keep going. Verse 29. So they will treat you with hatred, take all that you've worked for, and leave you stark naked so that the shame of your debauchery will be exposed, both your depravity and your promiscuity. So the result of this wandering, instead of getting what they wanted, they're going to be left naked and exposed. 
These things, verse 30, will be done to you because you acted like a prostitute with the nations, defiling yourself with their idols. You followed the path of your sister, so I will put her cup in your hand. Think about how crazy this is. The people in the south saw what happened to the kingdom in the north. Idolatry, wandering from God, all that stuff. And so God dispersed them into exile, completely gone, completely, um, you know, sorry, destroyed and shattered, right? Like he says, you're left naked and all this stuff. And they looked at that, the people in the south, and went, yeah, but if I try it, it'll work. That's an arrogant, we're all arrogant like this. You know, you ever watch a YouTube video of a guy trying to jump over something and he face plants and whatever. And for me anyway, my first thought is always, I could have done it though. You know, this is them. This is the arrogance there. So God tells them, you foolish, you know, you fools. I'm, I'm going to give you the same cup that they had to drink. And so now Ezekiel, he gives them a song about the cup that they don't really want to drink. Right? So, oh, he says, first, you're going to have to drink the cup of the, your sister in the north. And now here's a song about drinking the cup. This is what the Lord God says. You will drink your sister's cup uh, wait, is it show up in? Okay, no. In this version, it's just like paragraph form. If you have a Bible, this is written out like a, like a psalm, like poetry. Um, you will drink your sister's cup, which is deep and wide. You will be an object of ridicule and scorn, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and grief, with a cup of devastation and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it. You drink it all the way to the bottom. That means you will gnaw its broken pieces, tear your bre- and tear your breasts, for I have spoken. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you must bear the consequences of your indecency and promiscuity. So the pattern with this whole section that we're going to see over and over again is, and we're going to do this with a bunch of the nations that he's going to talk about judging coming up next uh, in the next few weeks. But the pattern always goes like this in Ezekiel. First, here's the charges. Second, here's the punishment. And third, here's the reason for this whole cycle, right? So uh, like what God hopes to bring about. So he does it again, more charges. Look at verse, he's like a prosecuting attorney. Let me bring up more charges. Um, This last part here, 36 through 45. Then the Lord said to me, son of man, will you pass judgment on Ahola and Ahobala? Then declare their detestable practice to them, practices to them, for they have committed adultery, and blood is in their hands. They have committed adultery with their idols, and their children they bore to me. They have sacrificed in the fire as food for their idols. So this wandering from God isn't just feelings. Right? It isn't just, well, you don't trust God with your feelings. You're not worshiping hard enough when, you know, or whatever. Um, what we believe really has an impact on the way that we live. And these people had wandered so far from Yahweh They had wandered so far into the arms of other gods, these other gods demanded their children as sacrifices. And so it says their adultery is not just some sort of, you know, wandering spiritually. Their hands are covered in blood, literally, the blood of their own kids. This is brutal what these people got into. And then verse 38. These are the charges. They did this also to me. They defiled my sanctuary. On the same day, they profaned my Sabbaths. On the same day, they slaughtered their children for the idols. They entered my sanctuary to profane it. Yes, this is what they did inside my house. This is brutal. Imagine burning your kid to death in the arms of a god, Molech, the Babylonian god. Watching your kid literally burn to death in a big fiery, you know, a pit of fire, screaming, crying, the whole thing. And then coming to church, walking in and saying to the greeter, well, you have a blessed day. Mm-mm. Nope. 
God, you, you can understand, like, sometimes we read what God did to these people with the fall of Jerusalem, and we think, part of us thinks, was that really fair, what God did? This is how bad this had gotten. This is how bad these people had drifted. And, it, like, you know, nobody, you know, in our culture, right, you know, we've, there's a lot of terrible things that happen. There's a school shooter or something, and they capture the school shooter. Nobody ever goes boy, that seems really unfair. He has to spend the rest of his life in jail. Or, you know, th- this is the level here. We're talking like, if this happened in our culture, we would all be up in arms with these people too. All right, verse 40 uh, through, what is this, 45. In addition, they sent for men who came from far away when a messenger was dispatched to them. And look how they came. You bathed, painted your eyes, you adorned yourself with jewelry for them. You sat on a luxurious couch with a table spread before it on which you would set my incense and oil. The sound of carefree crowd was there. Drunkards from the desert were brought in, along with common men. They put bracelets on the women's hands and beautiful tiaras on their heads. Then I said concerning this woman, worn out by adultery, will they now have illicit illicit sex with her, even her? Yet they had sex with her as one does with a prostitute. This is how they had sex with Ahola and Ahobala, those depraved women. But the righteous men will judge them the way adulteresses and those who shed blood are judged, for they are adulteresses and blood is on their hands. So basically, you prettied yourself up so that you could cheat on me. Um, I heard a comic the other day on YouTube talk about how much he was telling a bunch of jokes about this. Seems pretty horrible, but he was saying about how his, he grew up and his dad was always cheating on his mom. And the premise of the whole joke was um, we should have noticed something when, you know, he said, you want your dad to have a dad bod. He goes, you don't want your dad to work out and tan and white. When your dad starts whitening his teeth, you know something is wrong. That's what he said. Uh, this is kind of the idea here. They're whitening their teeth. They're getting rid of the dad bod. They're working out. Uh, all so that they could cheat on God. So God's response then, like a ton of Hebrew prophecy, he says the same thing like a hundred times and just changes it a little for emphasis. These last handful of verses, verse 46. This is what the Lord God says. Summon an assembly against them, consign them to terror and plunder. The assembly will stone them and cut them down with their swords. They will kill their sons and daughters and burn their houses. That's the punishment. And then the reason and the result of the punishment, again, the cycle, right? The charges, the punishment, and then the reason for it. So I will put an end to the depravity in the land, and all the women will be admonished to imitate your, de- your depraved uh, behavior. They will punish you for your depravity, and you will bear the consequences for your sin of idolatry. Then, this is the main theme of the whole book of Ezekiel. Do you remember this? Then you will know that I am the Lord God. So he says, I will put an end to this depravity, and the next generation is going to come by, and they're not going to make the same mistake as you. And then everybody in the people of God, you will know that I am the Lord. All right, so we see a lot of judgment and punishment in this passage. That's not the route we're going to take today when we talk about this passage. I want to talk about something that we see as we look at how this passage is structured. The whole structure of this uh, passage, is supposed this chapter, is supposed to make us stop and see uh, the Jerusalem church was supposed to, was saying something like this. Israel in the north was bad. We're better, though. That's why they were destroyed. But God is going to continue to protect us from this new Babylonian threat. God will never let his temple fall. He'll never let the holy city fall. Right? And we see a lot of this filling in details from the book of Jeremiah. It has more narrative about what was specifically happening in the city of Jerusalem during this time. And there were false prophets that were coming along and saying, yeah, they were bad, but we're not as bad, right? Israel was terrible, but we're a little bit better. That attitude 
of making myself feel better by looking at what happened to them is universal. When sin drives our in, the internal story that we tell ourselves, we just get really good at comparing ourselves to others. And we do it in a way that makes us feel good. And this is why, this is one of the reasons uh, God gave us his law, actually. Watch this. From the New City Catechism. Do I have this up here? I do. From the New City Catechism, question 15. Since no one can keep the law, what's its purpose? That we may know the holy nature and will of God. This is a key sentence here. And that the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts and thus our need for a savior and then he goes on the law teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of the savior but that middle part when you look at the law of god it's looking at the law of god is meant to reveal your sin uh, romans three twenty says this for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because knowledge of sin comes through the law Basically, God gave us his law and the way that it's supposed to go for a reason. Um, To look at it and go, I can't do that. I'm not going to be able to follow that. Think about Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount for a minute. You guys remember we read the Sermon on the Mount? We read the version from Luke a while ago. But think about this for a sec. Uh, Jesus says, you guys have heard it said, uh, do not commit adultery. And that sermon series we were talking about, he talks about this. He goes... Everybody in the crowd probably went, yeah, I can do that one. I'm not committing adultery. And they're thinking, okay, on this one, I'm going to be safe. And Jesus basically says, no, no, no. Even your, you can commit adultery with your thoughts. Everybody goes, uh-oh. And then Jesus says, you know that guy that you hate? When he attacks you, turn the other cheek. And then he says, live an honest life. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Love your enemies. Forgive people. Give to the needy, but do it in secret so that you don't get any praise from people when it happens. We should look at the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom life, and we should go, "Uh uh-oh. Jesus himself is the perfect embodiment of following that law. He kept these laws perfectly. And when you look at the life of Jesus in the same way when you look at the law, you should feel overwhelmed. Jesus was sinless, completely, perfectly sinless. You, me, we are not sinless. So here's what you're meant to do. We're meant to compare ourselves not to the people around us. As believers, we're meant to compare ourselves to him, to the Lord, to Jesus. Right? We don't compare ourselves to Hitler or that guy getting thrown off the plane. And make, That's the same, by the way. That's the same level of evil. No, okay. Um, to make ourselves feel better, to boost our ego with unrealistic sort of pictures of who we are, we're supposed to compare ourselves to Christ and get a real sense of how fallen and sinful we are. And you're supposed to look at the life of Jesus. You're supposed to look at the the holy law of God and go, I could never do that. But the point isn't to look at Jesus and to wallow in our sin because of what theologians and pastors and everybody, we call the great exchange. You get credit for that life. We had a whole song in our passage today about the cup. What we learn in the New Testament is Jesus picks up that imagery and he says, I'm going to drink that cup for you. I'm going to drink the cup of wrath. He picks up that language. And the first, he does it in terror as he's sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, he is absolutely falling apart. And he says, Father, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will but yours be done. This is what he's talking about. A greater version of the cup that fell on the people of Jerusalem. And then when Peter, the, they come arrest Jesus, and Peter starts swinging his sword, and he cuts off that guy's ear and everything. Jesus says to him, you know, put your sword away, dude. I'm paraphrasing. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Like, I have to drink this cup. He picks up that language from Ezekiel about the wrath in the cup. 
Our sin deserves the cup of God's wrath. And like the people that we're reading about here, we have wandered away from real love. We use the people around us who are selfish and inward-facing. And every time we do this, every time we sin, and every time we uh, fall short of the glory of God, that's the way Romans puts it, uh, we fill up the cup a little bit more. And we fill it up, and we fill up the cup of God's wrath. And then what happens, though? Jesus drinks the cup. Think about how amazing that is. Think about how greedy you are. (laughs) Think about how much you trust in something besides God. Think about how much you trust in idols. Think about your anger, your lust, your dishonesty, your selfishness, your pride. Think about all of those things and then listen to this very carefully. If you are a follower of Jesus, right, if you're one of God's adopted kids, this is the most important part of the gospel. When God looks at you, when God the Father looks at you, all that stuff is not what he sees. He doesn't look at you and see lust and anger. He doesn't look at you and see pride and greed. He looks at you, each and every one of us in this room. And what does he see? He sees sinless perfection, the sinless perfection of Jesus. And when you fall short, Satan's going to whisper in your ear, that's not true. And it doesn't always feel true. Shame overwhelms us because of our sin. But the gospel says that that is absolutely true. God doesn't look at you and think, man, what a loser. Boy, do I know how to pick him. That's not what he sees. He looks at you and he sees the life and the death of Jesus. And he says, man, I love that kid. I'm so glad I brought that kid into my kingdom, my adopted kid. And when he looked at the Jesus on the cross, what did he see? He saw you, and he poured out his wrath. He saw your failure, and he poured out all the judgment that should have fallen on you. He looked at Jesus, and he saw your idols, your pride, your lust, your anger, dishonesty, selfishness, all of that stuff. Do you see how this changes then our self-perception? How this changes that, that sinful habit of looking at others to lift ourselves up? All right, here's a couple ideas. First, we can move forward, right? Uh, Here's how it changes it. We can move forward now in our spiritual growth, and we can be honest about our sin and failure. You see, before, if you have to sort of self-justify, if you have to always be the one who uh, lifts yourself up, you're going to be tearing people down, and you're going to have to be dishonest about sin. But you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to try and earn God's love. You don't have to try to earn your self-worth. And you don't have to try to tear other people down. You can wage war with the sin within you, and you can be real about the sin within you. And at our church, I want us to be the kind of church that takes this seriously. I don't want you guys to pretty yourselves up, you know, what is it, uh, throw lipstick on a pig and then bring them to church. That's not what we're doing here. We're coming together because we're all a bunch of busted up losers who've been redeemed by this great Savior. And because God looks at us and sees the life of Jesus and not our sin, we can be real with each other about our sin. And we can be real with each other about helping each other in sin. Second, kind of what I was getting at, you don't have to tear people down to lift ourselves up. We don't have to play that comparison game. Think about how this works in your life. Somebody else gets promoted instead of you. Great, good for them right? Because you don't have to compare yourselves to them. Someone else had success in whatever. Great. Good for them. None of this applies to Dodger fans, by the way. Heads up. Um, But anyway, my self-worth doesn't have to come from playing the comparison game. I'm freed from that. And then third, because I'm freed from that, it makes real, actual, genuine love possible, right? If my sense of contentment and peace 
comes is dependent on anything my neighbor does isn't dependent on anything they do or who they are. I'm just free to love them anyway, no matter what. You're free to serve, to lower yourself to people in society that society says you should be above. You can serve those people now. You're free to give yourself away because that's what Jesus did for you. Because of the great exchange, right, where you get credit for his righteousness and he gets credit for your sin, you're brought into this new life of love. And you're free to, to like, deeply, truly, honestly serve people. And this is what we do with Pabst. If you're doing our Pabst Blue Ribbon pathway where we're trying to love and serve our neighbors, if you don't want, know what that is, I'm not going to get into it a ton today, but um, we have this pathway where we try to reach out to our neighbors. <clears throat> um, we're not doing that as some way to earn God's love, right? We serve people because we have been served, right? And when we're in there, uh, in these relationships, we're free to genuinely love and honor and lift other people up and then push ourselves down because we know no matter what happens, God looks at us and he sees Jesus. We don't have to act like Judah in the South looking at Israel in the North. Well, hey, at least I'm not like those guys because the truth is we're all, we are and we're worse, but God says, I don't care. I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to see the life of Jesus. All right, let's pray.